Job 42 is where we turn this morning. Job 42 is the last chapter of Job, and we're grateful for our study, of course, all throughout this wonderful gospel, if you don't mind, according to Job. As we've seen many indications of how was Job accepted before God? How did he dare to come before God in, in God's presence? How do, how do we then come before and have that confidence even when things are going well or things are going bad? How can we have confidence in the day of, of trial and difficulty? Well, God has revealed himself in these last several chapters, beginning in chapter 38 uh, through 41, had two, a series of two speeches to Job specifically, and has various charges. Remember, all this is in the context of, especially this last scene, is in the context of a legal or a court appearance. Remember, Job has said, may the Almighty come and answer me. He's, he's accused me, at least ostensibly, or, or uh, it presents itself as an accuse, accusation because I have been suffering all lot. And the the predominant wisdom is, well, you only suffer because of sin. And so, obviously, Job, you sin, therefore you're suffering. And Job says, I haven't haven't sinned. And if I have, I've confessed it and come before God in, in, uh, in sacrifice and so forth. But because his reputation, Job's reputation, has been slandered, I guess he would say, by God, that somehow God has either to prove, you know, read the record of wrongs that Job has done, or say he's innocent. You know, the suffering is not because of his sin, which is what the the friends accused him of. And so Job has said, God, either come down and condemn me, you know, read my list of, or read the list of accusations you have against me, or declare me innocent, clear me of any wrongdoing, so other people will know that I'm not a wrongdoer. I'm not an evil, wicked person. Well, God comes down and he answers Job's request. No, he doesn't. He shows that Job is speaking out of turn, has been speaking out of turn, We'll, re- we'll reconcile that with a statement, two statements in later in chapter 42. You, to the friends, you have not spoken rightly of me as my servant Job has. Wait a minute, how has Job spoken rightly of God? We'll consider that next week, Lord willing. But when Job was speaking, he was speaking, as he will confess here, beyond his knowledge, beyond his wisdom, beyond his understanding. He was saying things that in, in the severe suffering that he was enduring, physical suffering, right? The head, head to toe boils and discomfort and scraping his, his wounds with a potsherd, you know, broken piece of pottery, or the, the loss of his financial livelihood, his means of production, his means of distribution, his camels were gone, his donkeys were gone, his, ox, his sheep, his oxen, all these were taken away. His servants were killed in the course of that. His children were taken away. And he's a laughingstock to all the people. His reputation is destroyed. I mean, his life is ended. He never thought about taking his life, but he says, God, kill me now, because this I can't bear this any longer. I can't bear the shame and reproach. I'm a man of integrity. And so all these things are going along, and Job has been giving, if you don't mind, full vent to his frustration, his disappointment, his, his situation of shame, and says, God, either finish me off and prove me, just put me in the grave now, or vindicate me, set me at, uh, at freedom, uh, set me free because of all these, this misunderstanding of who I am before God. God un- responds in words of, not even of comfort so much. It is comforting ultimately because it shows us who God is, but he responded with lots and lots of questions. Remember some of those questions? And it kind of 
bears into our, our study this morning. Do you remember the questions that he would ask, in, especially in chapter 38? So many questions of the 70 or so questions that he asked. Can you? Hey, Job, can you ever do this? Who has done this? And when, when does this happen? Have you ever in your life done this? Command of the morning, right? What about this? And from whose hand does this happen? Or do you ever do this? Will you do this in the future? Is it by you or is it, by, is it at your hand, your word, by your command that this happens? And Job, he doesn't even get opportunity to respond because any of those questions would respond, well, no, I can't do that. No, I, I don't know where that is. I don't know when that happens. I have I've never thought about that. You know, when does the mountain goat give birth? And I don't care about the mountain goats. I care about my goats. Enough said. And from whose, and do you, I haven't done those things. And so Job is being lowered in his own estimation while God is being exalted. Now, Job always would have that idea, and even the friends, to a certain degree, would have the idea that God is almighty, God is powerful, God is strong, God is sovereign over all things. Amen and amen. And yet, when Job's wisdom, when Job's knowledge says, wait a minute, this this does not follow this, and somehow the whole universe is out of balance because I am being wronged. I'm not a wrongdoer. How should I suffer wrong? Because I'm not a wrongdoer. I'm a, I'm a right doer, a good doer, a doer, do-gooder. There you go. And so he is confused at that, and he says, somehow the whole universe is going to be upset because of this lack of justice toward me. And what does God do? He rehearses all the matters in which, no, I care for this part of the universe, I care for that. I established the whole thing. You know, the foundations of the earth, were you there when I set the foundation? And the, the morning stars sang, were you there? Do you know anything about where the stars are? Can you call out the constellations by name? Can you make the sun go out and turn the darkness this way? And so God is saying, you're just a small piece of my wonderful creation that I monitor, I manage, I created the whole thing. Don't you think I'm going to manage it well? And so on and on it goes, and ended, of course, with that wonderful description in chapters uh, 40 and 41 of the two great beasts, the greatest land animal that ever lived, and the greatest sea animal that ever lived, and maybe some people think it still is living, not as a crocodile, but as a big dragon, sea dragon, or something like that. Job could never possibly consider that he could, you know, say, hey, come on and work in my garden. I need to plow my field. Hey, come on, behemoth, let me put a little uh, noose or bridle on you, kind of, or, or no, nothing like that. If Job could not consider that he would manage these wonderful beasts, these creations of God, how could he approach God and say, God, let me correct you in this because you got this a little bit wrong. You have wronged me. He said earlier in, in this account, God, the Almighty has wronged me. He's done me in injustice. He's either withheld justice from me or given me the, a bum deal. This is not right. And so, lest we think is, I mean, he's, he's excessive. Well, yes, he's excessive. I mean, he's the richest guy in Babylon. Don't mind the analogy. He, he's the famous, most famous of the sons of the East. He has all this stuff. He has all, from, from the heights of, of popularity and fame to the depths of despair and shame, Job is, I mean, he is the extreme. But don't we, when we have some kind of a disappointment, some kind of a frustration, whether a vehicle or a loss of a job or death of a loved one, don't we kind of say, God, I wish you had warned me at least. I wish you had, you know, kind of planned ahead so this wouldn't have happened. God, it would have been nice if, or God, I really wanted that thing. Or God, I really didn't want that thing or that person in my life. Isn't God sovereign over all things? I mean, the good things, the bad things that we would tend to classify, oh, that's a good thing. Oh, that's a bad thing. Isn't God sovereign over every possible thing? Yes, he is. And that is what Job has 
finally come to realize here as we look at Job 42 and verse 1, he's answering, and again, this is in legal context, he's answering Yahweh. Job had spoken, Yahweh is now speaking, has spoken, and so Job responds to Yahweh. And he said, I know, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Then he quotes God. Verse 3, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I've declared things which I did not know, or that which I did not know, excuse me, that which I did not understand, things too marvelous for me which I did not know. And then he quotes God again, and Elhu, hear now and I will speak, I'll ask you and you make me know. And Job says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I reject myself and repent in dust and ashes. The earlier confession that Job made back in chapter 40 was rather insufficient. If you look back at that, in Job 40, God had said, okay, you answer me. Let him who reproves God answer, verse 2. And so Job answered, but his answer was not at all acceptable to God. He says, basically, I'm not going to talk anymore. I've said my piece. I'm going to let it stand. I'm not withdrawing, withdrawing, retracting anything. I'm going to let it, let it ride right there. Because Job has not been sufficiently taught or schooled. He's not been educated, which is part of what Elihu had said. God brings suffering into our world for a lot of, a lot of reasons, but one of them is for discipline, for training, that we would rest in him. And Job is not quite there yet, so God just comes back and he says, you, verse uh, 7, now gird up your loins like a man. I'll ask you and you make me know. But this in verse 8 is really the key argument, I think, of, of what is going on in these last chapters and throughout, really. God asks Job, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? For, in other words, for you, Job, to be right, do I have to be wrong? In order for your understanding of the universe to happen and, and be established and be recognized as true, does that mean that my wisdom and my purpose and my power has to be, how does he say, annulled or canceled or just erased or, or treated as a small thing? And so he says, Job, in so many words, you don't know what you don't know. You, you are so ignorant, you're not able to do so many of the things that I do all the time for the sake of this, this wonderful uh, universe. And so uh, this, the first response of Job was insufficient. The second one is right on the money. It's right exactly what he should have said at the beginning, which he did, by the way, right? Chapters 1 and chapters two, uh, chapter 2, he said... The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he, of course, he's using the covenant name of the Lord. Or he says to his wife, shall we accept only the good things from God and not the calamitous things? And all these things Job did not sin in his words. Well, he commenced to err. He commenced to accuse God. He was contending with the, with the Almighty, fault finder, you know, finding fault with God, which is not a good condition. But this opening statement, verse 2, I know, this is a settled resolve. I have come to realize, I knew it to a certain degree before. I knew God. It's not like I, I'm meeting him for the first time here. I, but now I know. I know that I know that I know kind of thing. A, a settled conviction. It is usually, you can find it throughout scripture when, when you see a phrase like, now I know that something. It's usually an answer to somebody who was praying to God and asking God, please answer, please bring a, a solution to this issue This, uh, uh, in terms of a prayer or a lament even. And so now having received that answer, whatever the answer might be, 
The person says, I know. I know that something is, is true. Uh, here he says, of course, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. We see elsewhere the, this very same formula, I suppose. Psalm 20 and verse 6 says, Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand, which was what God, Yahweh, had asked Job. Hey, can anybody with the power of your right hand, can you even save yourself with the, your, the power of your own right hand? No, that's God's prerogative. And in Psalm, verse, Psalm 41, verse 11, By this I know that you delight in me, because my enemy makes no shout and triumph over me. This has been one of Job's frustrations, because the people that he used to employ or, or not employ, because they were rascals or bandits or whatever, he says they're the ones, and their sons are the ones that are mocking me, and I just can't bear it. But here he says, My enemy makes no shout and triumph over me, because God had answered he says that I know that you can do all things. In other words, God is capable of whatever he wants to do. Whatever is within his will, within his purpose, as you see in the rest of that verse, God is able to do. Uh, we saw earlier uh, the, the statement by God. God in Job 40 and verse 9 says, Do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Do you have an arm of, of salvation or creation? We see God's arm active in both the creating of the world and the sustain, sustenance or, or saving of the world. And we see that he is, is powerful in all these ways. God can do all things. Again, the two main categories of what's going on in these last chapters is focusing on God's omnip, omniscience, his wisdom, his, his uh, ability to not just know things, but even make it so. It's not like God went on a discovery mission and said, well, I, need, I just made this world, but I need to find how it operates, how it works. I don't even know how. To. No, he made everything and he spoke it into existence. It just came to be and everything happens exactly according to his, his wisdom, his power, his wisdom. In his power, as he focuses on here, God has all power to do all things according to his will. He has both the ability to do it and the authority to do it. Now, to distinguish that is kind of picayunish, but you can understand there are a lot of people who have a lot of power in this world, but they don't have any authority or any uh, permission or uh, capacity or opportunity to use that power, to use it. Or they have the authority without the power. In other words, they have the position of authority, but it's other people calling the shots. Well, in either way, this is not applied to God. God has both the ability to do something and the right to do it. And God is is omniscient in his power, uh, omnipotent in his power, all-powerful in that. Uh, this is where Job is saying, you know, you can do whatever you want to do. And kind of reminding of, of his earlier statements, God gives and he takes away. We're going to accept whatever his will is because he's able to do whatever his purpose is. He is recognizing that God is sovereign, not just over the stars and the sky and the earth and all this, but over Job's experience as well. Job has never questioned the fact that God is all-powerful. In fact, the friends would also say, often, God, you know, the Almighty does this and he's powerful and he'll do all these things. But their solution was insufficient. That Okay, Job, you just need to repent and God will restore all the stuff to you. Well, that's not the answer that God expects. That's not what God that's about. We just go to God for the good things he gives. No, that's Satan's accusation from chapter 1. The only reason why Job honors you is because you have blessed his socks off. Paraphrased the situation there. And that's not what God is about. We draw near to God because of who he is, not all the other traps of, or trappings of, of knowing him. 
we draw near to him knowing God can do all things. He's able, he's, he's all-powerful to do things. And he says here, second verse, or second part of this verse, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is a purpose that is uh, a, a plan or a resolved, an action, a, a, res, a resolution to act. Usually it's used to describe uh, evil plans, plans of evil wicked men. We would see it translated as schemes, the schemes of evil men, you know, plotting evil against their neighbor and so forth, or the devices, uh, not the electronic devices, but the thoughts, the, the intentions that people have that would be just evil and, and intending to do harm to other people. Even it's used in that way with God when we recognize God's purposes which a lot of times has a resolution for judgment on wickedness. God resolves to do, uh, um, to accomplish his purpose in relation to wickedness. Jeremiah 23 and verse 20, for example, the anger of Yahweh will not turn back until he has done and established the purposes of heart, of his heart, namely judgment for wickedness. In the last days, you will clearly understand it. We see that God has a resolution. It's not that God is somehow... Uh, trying to figure out, you know, waking up in the morning and saying, hey, well, see what the weather's doing today and they'll kind of determine the schedule of events for... No, I mean, we do that often. We say, what's the weather? What, you know, am I hungry? Do I feel... Is my body working? You know, we get older, you have different calamities. Okay, how's my hip doing today? Uh, how's this do? How are the kids? You know, they had a bad day yesterday. How are the kids doing? God never has to take, you know, a, a checklist or run through a checklist. Okay, can we do this thing? Go ahead with it. Nothing. None of his purposes can be thwarted or undone or, or changed or challenged or say, God, I've got a better idea. Why don't we do it this way? God's purposes, his intention will be established. We see so much in this that it's beyond our ability. Purposes of Job. I mean, he was a businessman. He was a, a political leader. He was a social social leader. He was just all these, I mean, he was he was on the top of the of the pyramid, I suppose, top of the of the um, the stack, and his plans were th- certainly thwarted. They were undone. They were uh, something that he was reaching for. He had a, had a goal in mind, which is good to have goals, by the way. It's good to have plans and intentions. But can you have them in an open hand for God to put and take as He sees fit? Sometimes we make those goals ourselves, and we can't ever reach them. It's kind of like in terms of wealth. You know, don't set your hope on riches because it certainly sprouts wings like an eagle and flies away. Wait a minute, come up, come back to me. When we try to make plans separate from God, we're going to be frustrated because God's plans will be accomplished. He wants the glory. He wants the obedience in our lives. We don't want to ever say, well, I think I've got a better idea than God. I know, I know he says this over here in his word, you know, chapter blah, 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 and verse whatever. But I think in this situation that I'm going to do this over here. Well, wait a minute. Isn't to obey better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams that's Saul right we just read it have we read it yeah we read it earlier chapter 13 I think first Samuel when Samuel offers his wonderful I mean big sacrifice to Yahweh for their victory and Samuel says you fool essentially to obey is better than sacrifice just do what God wants he gave you command you blew it you're done kingdom's going to somebody else but wait 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 no you blew it nothing of God's plans and purposes can be uh, impossible to him. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. We see this, a different kind of word, but also translated thwart. Remember when um, Absalom came against David and David fled the city and fled the whole empire and actually went to a neighboring country and left one of his counselors there to thwart 
the council of Ahithophel, right? Hushai, the archite, was left to thwart. And that word's a little bit different. It talks about breaking or rendering useless the council of Ahithophel. And that's what happened. The council of Ahithophel was actually the right thing that Absalom should have done, but God had turned it. God, 2 Samuel 17, 14 says, Yahweh had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that Yahweh might bring calamity on Absalom. Wait a minute, God brought calamity? Yeah, because Absalom deserved it. He was a nasty fellow. Sweet name, wonderful name, but bad, bad character. So God's purposes are to thwart even evil plans, and yet it will be accomplished. Job rested in that knowledge. I know that you can do all things. So he's talking about his power and authority and his purpose, not just his knowledge of things, but his resolution for these things to come to pass. Nobody can undo them. Nobody can challenge them. Now, again, in the course of a legal contest, you recite or rehearse the charges against you or the accusations that have been made against you. What is the accusation of God? Not that Job is a sinner, not that Job is, is suffering because of some past sin, some unconfessed sin. It's not, that's not the issue. It's never been the issue. Verse 1, chapter 1, Job, man, so forth. Job, Job is a, upright, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. That's Job. We can see that. But in the course of Job's words, he was hiding or darkening counsel without knowledge. Job, you're talking things you don't know what you're talking about. Job, you are accusing me so that you can look good. You're, you are standing firm in your integrity, which is something God endorsed back in chapter 2, right? He still holds fast his integrity, though you incited me against him to curse him without cause. Well, yes, but now in the course of these many chapters, he has, Job has accused God of, of all kinds of things and, and questioning God. Either God does not care, or God does not know, or God is not able to answer, or God's just whatever. Something's not right here. But he just said, no. I've come to realize God does what is right. He has the power, has the wisdom to do it. Quoting God uh, in uh, verse 3, it is something that um, the statement God said back in chapter 38, verse 2, who is this who hides or darkens counsel? Uh, usually you want to shed light on the, on the conversation, right? You want to contribute positively to the conversation. Job isn't. He's, he's covering over wisdom. He's saying, no, God is, is this or God is that or uh, things that aren't right uh, in terms of God. So now Job is, is going back, and even, this was back in chapter 38, right? Job had a, a response in chapter 40. So this point is, Job had already responded to that first speech, but insufficiently. And so now he goes back to the very beginning. Okay, you accuse me, you're, saying, you're asking the question, who is this that hides counsel? That's me. You're, you're, you're accusing me of undermining or challenging your wisdom, your power over all the universe. That's been me. Without knowledge, yeah, that's me. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know all these things. I knew them to a certain degree, but I didn't rest in that knowledge. I didn't have that that uh, appreciation of it, uh, of uh, realization, whoa, I, God is almighty, but wait a minute, he's almighty over my situation. If he cares for the wild goats and the, and the deer and the ravens and all these different beasts and the big beasts too, do you think he cares for me, Job, son of whoever he was the son of? A husband of, of Mrs. Job and, and father, all these children, and a, a sustainer for this huge enterprise of, of business and for the community around him. Do you think God cares for, for him? Yes. And so he comes to the realization here. Verse 3, I have declared, not just uttered in a kind of a casual conversation, he has been adamant about it. He has declared, even in the court of law, God, I command you to come down and present your accusation against me. And or 
either accuse me or clear me, you know, declare me innocent. I have maintained this, not just, in, again, on a casual fashion, but to uh, really accuse God of, of these things. And he says, I have declared things, but I didn't know what I was talking about. Things that were too marvelous for me, I didn't even know these things. This idea of, of uh, things that are hard to understanding or hard to understand, did not understand, is uh, the idea of beyond your ability to discern. Uh, it's very similar. I don't know if you've had this experience lately when the power goes out, whether because you turn the light off, I mean, that's kind of obvious, or the power goes out and, and you're dark and you trip over something, you are not able to discern. There's an obstacle. I need to maneuver my body around that thing. If you don't have that ability to discern, you're going to go into all kind of dam- damaging situations and, and dangerous situations. That's what Job did. I, didn't, I couldn't discern these things. I was so blinded by my, my suffering, the pain, physical pain that he was going through, the, the loss of his family and so forth that we rehearsed. He says, I, I spoke out of turn. I, I was not speaking with discernment. I was not, you know, we're called, 2 Timothy 2.15, we're called to rightly divide the word of truth. He was not. He, he was, you know, we often talk about putting, you know, making a blanket statement, just throwing blankets left and right, covered over everything. And that's what Job has done. It's not helpful. You need to be more precise, more nuanced in your conversation. Job was saying, look, I've spoken things. I didn't know what I was talking about. Secondly, he says things that were too marvelous for me. Now, this word too marvelous, it's one word in, in the Hebrew, it talks about things that are the wondrous deeds of God, that are on display, what he has done, especially and even specifically, his wondrous deeds in the Exodus, both the the uh, wondrous plagues upon the people and the wondrous deeds of God bringing the people out of Egypt, the people of Israel. And so he does these wondrous deeds. Uh, Abraham was the one who said it earlier, chapter 18, verse 14 of Genesis, is anything too difficult? Actually, it wasn't Abraham, it was the Lord, angel of the Lord. Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I'll return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Well, that's a wonderful thing. Wonderful thing. Is anything too difficult, too wonderful, beyond the, the, the grasp of God? Nothing. Nothing is too difficult. Everything, wondrous things. And we, we kind of use that term you know, rather loosely. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, is it really? I mean, do you stand in awe of that thing? Do you say, whoa, that is something. We've never seen that before. We are called to ascribe to the Lord for uh, glory for his wonderful deeds, his wondrous deeds. Psalm 9 and verse 1, for example. I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart. I'll recount, recount all your wondrous deeds. When we talk about wondrous deeds, they're not something, oh, we can explain that. Parting of the Red Sea, yeah, easy. Kindergartner could do that. No, that is a God work. That's something that only God could do. That is a wondrous deed. All the ten plagues that God sent upon Egypt, those are wondrous deeds. Nobody else could... could uh, um, reproduce those things. I don't know, the, the Janus and Jambres tried the, to a certain degree. They said, we can do, with, oh yeah, the snake thing and the, and the turning w- water to blood, we can do that. Making gnats, that's the finger of God. Gnats, yes, because God is the creator in these ways. Wondrous deeds, you can't get your handle on, you can't understand them. They, they're attributed to God. Here, Job says, these things were too marvelous for me. They're beyond my ability to understand. They're beyond my ability to know. It reminds us of what the psalmist said in Psalm 131, verse 1. O Yahweh, my heart is not exalted. My eyes are not raised on high. In other words, he's not proud or arrogant. I do not involve myself in great matters or in matters too marvelous for me. Too marvelous. These things that God has spoken of, 
were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, surely you know. You're old enough to remember when I did this, right, Job? I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm not old enough to know this. I don't know about this. I don't know the stars. You call that that's the star up there? I mean, and, and calling them out and making... Job is just at his wit's end. These things are wonderful. But he was accusing God of, of undermining all these things because somehow injustice had fallen upon Job. And so the whole universe is out of whack. And that's what one of the friends said. Are you going to accuse God and, and, and accuse God such that, that the whole universe has to bend to your purposes now, Job? Is that what, what you want? And Job says, no, that's not what I want. It, it's better left in the hands of God. God is able to do it. He's able to do whatever he wants because of his can be thwarted. He says, uh, oh, Je- Jeremiah 32, 17. You know this verse, perhaps. Ah, Lord God, Lord Yahweh, uh, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. And then verse 27, behold, I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? No. But for us, yes. We have so many things that we cannot do. He says here that I was talking about things that I didn't know. I, I just didn't didn't have any knowledge of, didn't have any special uh, understanding of. I was just accusing God of this, that, and the other thing. It's not true at all. God has shown me that, and so I'm going to rest in that knowledge as well. <coughs> he quotes God again, verse 4, Job 42 and verse 4, having a quotation of God as well as Elihu. Back in uh, chapter 33, verse 31, Elihu had said, Pay attention, Job, listen up, listen to me, keep silent, and I will speak. So that's what he's quoting Elihu. Then he quotes God in uh, chapter 40, well, 33 and, and 40, verse 7. He says, I'll ask you, and you make me know. And so we, we see this uh, quotation again in a legal context, repeating the charge against him, and he responds. Job had a responsibility to speak to answer God, and he's answering God, but he says, you know, verse, verses 5 and 6, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I reject myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. These two verses are rather straightforward, and there's a, a well, straightforward in our English translation, but there's so many things going on in the Hebrew in, this, in this, these, views, these few verses. Even what does one letter in, in the Hebrew mean? And that is translated here, but, but now. Is it, is it a contrastive thing? Is it, is it a but or although or, or even though? Or, or something, you know, he's saying one thing and then he says, but this other thing. Or is it to be understood this and that? I've heard of you and I have seen you. And even the tenses of these verbs is, I have heard you and I, I have seen you. That's a perfective kind of a, of a situation. The point I'm getting at is, Job didn't just know God by hearsay. He didn't just know God by reputation. Other people talk about Yahweh, this God of, of uh, it wasn't even the Israelites, right? This is, I think, the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The nation of Israel was not founded yet. But we have this revelation of God, Yahweh. He's heard about him some degree, but I think he's specifically saying, I'm not talking about the hearsay, I'm not talking about the, the pre-Job 38 kind of conversation that, got, that Job has heard about God. I think he's referring specifically to chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41. I've heard you because God has spoken directly to Job, and he says, my eye sees you. And you think, well, wait a minute, what did Job see? We, we heard, or we saw rather, that in chapter 38, verse one, Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind. Well, there's something that Job could see, a whirlwind, and feel it most likely too. Same idea in chapter um, 40, 
is that, that same introduction of the, of the whirlwind in verse 6, 40 verse 6. Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind. So there was a whirlwind that Job saw, but what else did he see you know, with his own eyes? And is that what he's, he's saying when, when he's talking about the hearing of the ear, the seeing of the eye? Is that what he's saying? Is he talking about something that he had had, had <clears throat> a sensory perception of, which is true when you see uh, you know, Psalm 66 and verse 5, come and see the works of God who is fearsome in his deeds towards the Son of Men. When John, the apostle, saw the, the risen Christ in Revelation 1, verse 17, he says, when I saw him, I gave him a big old hug and a smooch on the, on the, on the cheek. No, I fell at his feet as a dead man. When I saw him, had that visual appreciation of who he is, we see, and, and throughout this, whenever in, in Old Testament you see or read about people seeing God, the Almighty, the angel of Yahweh, you have to remember John 1, 8, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. In other words, whenever persons prior to New Testament saw God, who would they see? God the Son, Jesus, the, the Messiah, the anointed, the second person of the Trinity. They always saw him. Did Job have a vision of, of, of God in some respect? Think of the burning bush with Moses. Think of, the, of the, the cloud descending on Mount Sinai. Think of the glory cloud descending and filling the tabernacle or the temple. Is that what Job saw? It could be. We're, we, it's not described to us. The only thing visible for, for Job to see is that whirlwind going on. So what's going on with this? When Job says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, I think there's some, some, some measure of sensory perception. Certainly Job has heard him, but there is this intellectual knowledge of a God that I think he's focusing on here. It is a form of, of perception, but of knowing God. And to, to read about the, this phrase, even to see, it's not always talking about the eyes. It's talking about a resolution or a recognition that this is what it is. For example, in Genesis uh, 39, remember when, when Joseph is sold into slavery and his master, this would be Potiphar, saw that Yahweh was with him and how Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hand, then Potiphar said, okay, you're going to be in charge of all my stuff. Wait a minute. His master saw both, both physical evidence, boy, this guy, Joseph, he's, he's a good worker, and God is with him, and so I'm going to make him a charge over all this. There's both a, a visual perception, but also a, a mental recognition. Same thing happened a little bit later in that chapter, Genesis 39, when Potiphar's wife said, See, look, recognize, consider, he, Potiphar, has brought in a Hebrew to laugh at us, and he came in to lie with me, and I screamed. She's not saying, hey, see, because J Joseph had already run away. She's saying, look, recognize this as truth. Recognize that this is what's going on. And other examples you could be as well. Whenever we see the hearing eye, the seeing, no, you don't read about the hearing eye, do you? Test, were you really listening? Anyway, hearing ear, the seeing eye, it's always about mental cognition. Do you understand? Or you have ears to hear, but you're not hearing. You have eyes to see, but you have not seen. You have a heart to believe, but you're, you're, you're so far away from that. Isaiah 6 and verse 10. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, do understand, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. That verse is quoted three times, four times, in the New Testament. Twice by the Lord, and then in Acts and in Romans as well. That's a key issue. They've got all the physical apparatus to see, to hear, to believe even, and they refuse to do any of it. So it's a willful condition in that regard. And Job says, I recognize you are Yahweh, you are God. I've heard of you, I see you, I believe it. I believe who you are. 
it's not just a sensory perception is what I'm getting at. If you get nothing else out of this long diatribe, Job has resolved, I know, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt, you are God. I have heard you, I have seen you, and therefore, verse 6, I reject myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Okay, so now there's another point of interpretation here. This word, well, actually, the, the word myself here is italicized. When you ever see a, a, a word in your translation that is italicized, you know, kind of cursive writing or slanty writing, that means it is added by the translators to clarify what they believe is going on. Here they think uh, Job is rejecting himself. He's repenting. He's... he's uh, um, uh, relenting concerning his his uh, integrity and so forth, or, or his, his sin, his error, but they're they're adding that. Other other word, other translations say, "I reject or recant my words, or all that I've said." So maybe your translation has it that way. In other words, Hebrew does not have an object. You'd read it this way: "I reject, and I repent in dust and ashes." Reject what? Reject yourself? Well, maybe. Reject my words? Well, maybe. Reject God? No, he's not going to do that, right? He's just embraced. He's reconfirmed his his devotion to God. But what is going on with this, with the object? Well, then we have to come back. What about this word reject? Is it talking about something that is turned away from? Uh, Other translations have abhor, you know, just treat as, as disgusting, despise, ESV has despise, uh, some translations have hate, I hate myself or I hate my words, um, NASB has retract, I retract my statements, for example, uh, loathe or reject here in the, in the Legacy Standard Bible, I reject myself. Whenever we see this, this word, we have to consider, okay, which, which root are we coming from? And again, in English, this is getting kind of deep, but you can handle it. Put your waders on. We'll go out into the deep end for a little bit. Actually, when you put waders on, you go swimming. It's not a good idea. Take those off. Let's just go and enjoy it. Um, there are different English. When I say bark, do you think of a dog or you think of a tree? There you go, a dog. When I say mean, do you think of us, oh, a mean person, or do you think of the average of numbers, or do you think of something different? When, you, when I say pen, do you think of a pig pen or a writing instrument? When I say bat, do you think of the flying mammal or a baseball bat? I mean, we have different words spelled the same way, homonyms we call them, and different stems that mean different things, obviously. And so does this word mean reject? Does it mean uh, to refuse something? I don't want anything to do with it. Put it away from me. Or does it mean something else, like uh, the idea of flowing or melting? I remember when... Um, Job 7, verse 5, he talks about skins. My skin scabs over and flows out again. Just just horrible wounds that Job had and just got the pus and different things flowing out of him. Is this the idea? Uh, or is there something else, kind of ex- an, an extension of that idea, flowing and melting, that somehow Job is, is submitting or yielding to God? Long story short is that I think what he's talking about is recanting his accusation against God. He is withdrawing his case. He is saying, look, I have made all kind of accusations against God. I am rejecting that. It's not a rejection of himself. It's not a rejection of who he is as as God's person. It is a rejection and abandonment of his case against God. God has wronged me. God better come down and prove to, you know, prove to me that he's done right. No. God does what is right. And so I'm going to I'm going to just withdraw 
It's not enough, as he said earlier in chapter 40, I'm not going to add anything else to my words. I've said what I'm going to say, and that's it. Here he says, I take back everything that I said wrongly about God, accusing him of, of doing things that are wrong or improper. And so he is uh, abandoning his case. The case is over, right? God is, God is good. God is acquitted. Job is acquitted. They're, they're, they're both on good terms. Job is right. God is right. Amen. So what does this next phrase say? And I repent in dust and ashes. I repent in dust and ashes. Its word repent, again, has different stems, different ideas, how do you, un- different roots, I should say, different ways to understand what's going on here. But one of it, you have to come look at the last two words here, in dust, three, four words, there you go, in dust and ashes. Okay, is there a contrast between dust and ashes? Yes, in some respects it's dust from the earth. It could be ashes like from a fire, something that's burned up. Usually, though, we're talking about earth. We're talking about dust of, you know, just dirt from the ground. And we read about made into dust and that kind of thing. Job sitting in the dust, ashes being sprinkled on the head of the friends and so forth. But usually throughout Scripture, whenever dust and ashes are referred to, it's talking about mourning. It's talking about some kind of lament. Something horrible has happened, and this is where we are. We're in dust and ashes. We are in sackcloth, um, uh, fasting and prayer and supplications. This is Daniel 9 and verse 3. When Esther, or excuse me, when Mordecai heard about this edict that, that uh, Haman got established, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and all the Jews then were fasting, weeping, wailing, and made, many made their bed in sackcloth and ashes. It was a time of mourning and, repent, mourning and repentance, but mourning and, and sorrow and, and uh, disgrace and all this kind of thing. So many examples in Scripture, these dust and ashes. So he says, I repent in dust and ashes. What does this idea of repenting mean? What is he doing here? Again, there's, there's much that could be said about it. One idea is that he is... Uh, repenting or being regretful about his his situation when God had purposes to accomplish his 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 uh, judgment upon people then he would sometimes relent concerning calamity Exodus 32 and verse 12 turn from your burning anger Moses said and relent concerning doing harm to your people or uh, elsewhere it would would talk about this Jeremiah 18 verse uh, eight talks about I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to do against the nation, and so forth. Other examples we can consider about what's going on. I think could be that. I think though I'm going to favor this idea when it says I repent in dust and ashes. I think he's talking about receiving comfort. I am receiving comfort from God instead of or after I have done all these months sitting in dust and ashes. You know what? Where did you get that idea? Well, because this is how it's used. Genesis 24, 24, 67. Isaac brought her, this is Rebekah, into her, his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. It's wonderful. Thus, Isaac, here's the word, was comforted after his mother's death. He was sorrowful, right? He was moping around in the fields and just getting kind of lost. And, you know, it wasn't good for man to be alone. It wasn't good for Isaac. Rebekah was brought to him. Therefore, Isaac was comforted. He was, in the words of Job 42, verse 6, he was, did he repent? No, he, he was comforted. He received that comfort from God. Another example, Genesis 37, verse 35, when Joseph was taken away from Jacob and the brothers brought back a false report, or at least led Jacob to believe a false idea, Jacob, uh, all, then all his, all Jacob's sons and all his daughters arose to comfort Jacob, but he refused to be comforted. 
He said, surely I'll go down to Sheol mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Do you remember, last example, remember when David had sinned with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 12, well, 11 is the sin, 12 is the confrontation, and a son was born to David and Bathsheba, and that God said that son's going to die. David, you're not going to die for your sin, but your son is. And what happened? David mourned, he wept, he fasted, he prayed that somehow God would have mercy on his son. When the child died, the, the servants of David said, oh no, he's going to lose it. I mean, he's going to do extreme things. No, he, this is 2 Samuel 12, 20, David arose from the ground, washed and owned himself, changed his clothes, came to the house of Yahweh and worshipped. Then he came to his own house and he asked and they set food before him and he ate. What's going on here? Job has said, look, I've withdrawn my case. I reject, retract all my statements against God and I am comforted now in the place of my experience of, of suffering, the dust and ashes that I've been in, the moping, the, mo- the, the horrible situation. Wait a minute, has Job been healed of all of this stuff yet? Has Job had all this wonderful turn of events? No, nothing like this. But he has received the comfort from God, not comfort from his experience. He's still in the, the thick of the pain, the, the, the estrangement from his family, the friends, and so forth. But he has found comfort in God. And so he's, he's going to return to normal living, to the best of his ability. He has no expectation He's going to ever recover from his disease. I mean, this is a pretty serious disease, and he was expecting to die. And how is he going to make? I mean, he has nothing, no capital. He's starting over from scratch. Nobody wants to be around him. He's the the pariah, the the negative person of the whole community. But he says, "I'm comforted. God has comforted me. I have found my rest in Almighty God." Which is a tremendous statement because nothing has changed in Job's outside experience but everything has changed in his mindset in his outlook and so he says i'm com- i'm i'm satisfied god is for me god is, is king over the universe he's king over me i'm going to rest in that knowledge but is that enough for you i mean i'm serious is that enough for you can you rest in the knowledge that god is sovereign over every possible thing and you think ah I wouldn't have done it that way myself. I I could have thought of at least 10 or or 12 ideas instead of what actually happened. But what did happen? God's purpose thwarted. And they, well, God had a nasty purpose. No, no. God is always working for his own glory and for our good. We don't always see it. We don't always appreciate it. But we should do, like 1 Peter 4 verse 19 says, those who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. Who does good? Well, we ought to do good, but God does good. So we can entrust our souls to him. We may suffer according to the will of God, but God is glorified in it. We can rest in that knowledge and then comfort others with that knowledge as well. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. What an amazing word. What a comfort we have from the scriptures, from Job's life. It's difficult. It's difficult to appreciate and to even apply in our own lives, but how freeing it is to recognize every possible thing that comes into our experience is from your hand. It's according to your purpose. It's according to your grand intention. And we're astounded. This is too wonderful for us. Please help us never to find fault with you, say, God, you've wronged me. God, you owe me an apology. God, somehow you messed up. No, you've never done that. Please help us to rest in you and to encourage others to give comfort. And we want to give physical comfort, surely. But this mental awareness that God is powerful, 
that his good and his purposes will be accomplished. That's what we need to be more concerned with, to rest in that knowledge, to entrust our souls to a God who always does what is good. Please help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.